You may be seated. You may stand up. Ah, they found a new way out. I like it. It, it, it was so I didn't know that song, and um, you know when you like first learn a song, you think you got it, and you try to close your eyes and try to look and close your eyes and we're in, you know, and and w- when my kids were little, they used to make up words all the time. Like my one daughter created the word organize, to organize and design, and. I started singing, and I thought it said, instead of re-surrender, I thought it said resurrection. And halfway through the word, I realized I wasn't singing what everyone else was singing. But from that point on, I thought, you know, resurrection. <laughs> it's kind of a, there is a, a fresh resurrection in our own life when we re-surrender again, day in and day out. So we've been walking through a series on critical pieces for those who want to be a, a partner partner with this church, a, a member of this church, a, a covenanted person as we journey together as a congregation. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Word. Uh, we really do value the Word. We rely on the Word. It's our standard for faith and practice. Uh, it's also a primary means by which we commune and connect with God. He, he speaks to us. He uh, he evaluates and analyzes us through His Word, and we get to understand Him through His Word. Last week we talked about salvation. Salvation, big S, not just moment in time, way back when, but the journey of salvation that we all walk the the past and present and future sense of salvation, and try to talk about all that means. Today we want to talk about the church. Uh, I made a comment. A few weeks ago, and I, I thought it was a comment that most would know, and I had a few people come up and said, hmm, hadn't heard that. But that the word church, ecclesia in the New Testament, uh, pretty much always, but maybe two places, and those two places are questionable, almost always, it refers to a local body of Jesus followers. A concrete, concretized group that you can identify. And so today, I want to unpack some of what that means. Again, the last two, I did a flyover of the Word, a flyover of the, of the uh, salvation. Today, instead of a flyover, I'm going to try to dig down into two illustrations of church that I think will be helpful for us, at least I hope will be helpful for us, as we move forward as a body of Jesus' followers. So, the focus today is the local church, and if I can, I, like I did the last two weeks, I just want to walk you through the little piece of the membership covenant that we'll be using. Um, I promise to accept biblical instruction. Uh, this is the third paragraph in, in what we're going to do in a, a bit, in, I think in a month. Uh, and when we say I promise to accept biblical instruction, it doesn't mean I promise to accept and believe what I've been taught. Uh, Ryan, several uh, weeks ago, talked about the difference between the Thessalonians and the Bereans when the gospel was preached. And the Thessalonians, they resorted to what they always knew to be true, and they lost out. And the Bereans 
relied on what, what God had given them in the past, but they also searched the scriptures to see if this is true. And that, that's really the, the attitude, the mindset, when we say um, that I, I promise to accept biblical instruction, it, it's that of the Bereans. So I have a really good friend, medical doctor, who trains medical doctors. He writes a newsletter for medical doctors. I subscribe to his newsletter, and so I get it every, I don't know, it's every other week, every week, I'm not sure, periodically. And he tends to take two or three medical issues and go through the research and then help unpack those aspects of the medical research. And about every third one is something that I understand and I actually care about because it has something to do with my own personal health or my wife or my kids. And so I just keep up to date. Plus, I, I, I really believe in investing in various areas of knowledge and understanding because it makes a more well-rounded person. Anyways, in this last newsletter, he had a, a psychiatrist who was also a medical doctor who was talking about his days in medical school and what he learned. And he said, as we always used to say back in medical school, that 50% of what we teach you will be wrong. We just don't know which 50%. I hope the stats aren't that bad for uh, theological training, but I can almost guarantee you that much of what, some of what you've been taught in the past, and perhaps some of what you're being taught now, is wrong. We don't know what part that is. And that's why we approach as the Bereans. The scripture is our standard. We go back to the scriptures. Having said that, anyone here want a medical doctor that never went to med school? I mean, of course not. We recognize that we need trained and we need taught, and we need trained and taught with a humble attitude toward the data. And in this context, our data is the Word of God. And so, that's what we mean by, by the way, you do know the word disciple. Uh, I, I realize we've kind of uh, given it like churchy jargon. It, it means something in the church world. But the word, word disciple literally means learner. A disciple, ipso facto, by definition of the word, is a learner. And so if you're not a learner, you're not a disciple. Part of discipleship is learning, and so that's why we agree to accept biblical instruction. Okay, I'll try to go through a little faster. Um, I promise to accept biblical instruction and to contribute to a loving and united church family. And that's going to be the crux of what I want to talk about today, but I'll go through the rest of this because it frames that key statement, that that's what we do. I promise to accept biblical instruction and to contribute to a loving and united church family through my regular attendance. Um, I like that it says contribute through because much of American Christianity is about what I get by attending. A really good friend of mine at a Christmas service, Christmas Eve service one time said, why is it always that after Christmas we go back to school, we go back to our job, we go back to our friend group, we go back to other family that we didn't see, and the first question everyone asks is, what did you get for Christmas? He said, how come no one ever asks, what did you give for Christmas? With the same enthusiasm. He said, I hope that we can be, and he said that, and I think it's true for us too, I hope that we can say not just, what did you get from attending church today? But we can ask the question, what did you give? 
What did you contribute? How were you part of the body of Christ that where iron sharpens iron, where we take the multitude of gifts that we have and serve one another? And when I say church, I'm not talking about the, the Sunday morning hour and a half when we all gather together. This is the gathering of the church. But you are the church and the ministers of the church are really outside of, of this hour and a half event. Hopefully there's all kinds of ministries. And so the question becomes, how do we contribute? And in this case, through our regular attendance, and he's going to unpack it a little bit more, with time, finances, spiritual gifts that God has given me. Um, so I like to say this. People tell me what they value. I always say to them, you know what? Show me your date book and your checkbook, and I'll tell you what you really value. Because where we invest our time, where we invest our money, where we invest our capabilities, our capacities, our abilities, our spiritual gifts, by the way, all of which are given by God, says more about what we value than what we claim that we value. Uh, by the way, if any of you happen to be spiritually gifted in the help of service, you know that helps and service is something you do and you like to do. Uh, a real practical application of this message will be show up tonight at 5.15 and help me take down all of these chairs and set up tables for the 80 or so people who will be coming tonight. Just a shameless plug. Because otherwise, I'm going to do it all myself, and I don't want to do that. But I won't, because I know what kind of church you are. Okay. I promise to accept biblical instruction and contribute to a loving and healthy family through my regular attendance with my time, finance, spiritual gifts that God has given me. I commit to supporting the ministries of this church. By the way, that's why we're doing tonight. Uh, tonight, the, the goal is to help people either discover or reaffirm or maybe do a little correction on how God has, has gifted you and wired you. My wife, in our training today, she told a wonderful story of, of working with someone about their spiritual gifts who had been doing it for 35 years, and they knew what their gifts were. And as they were getting older, they could no longer do those things the way they used to, and they were lamenting it, and they were, they were sad about it. And she said, well, let, let's take a look at these secondary gifts. And she listed out the secondary gifts. And, and that began a decade of reorienting how he served the kingdom of God in these secondary gifts that he had the capability and the capacity and, quite frankly, the wisdom now after so many years of serving to do it. And so it, it can be that as well. So if you want to discover, and if you're one of these people who says, I know all my gifts, I don't need to come. No, 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 you need to come because you need to help the other people figure it out. That's part of what we do. The way it works. Okay, so that's the covenant. What I'd like to do with that then is really focus on this statement: contribute to a loving and united church family. I want to do it through two extreme examples: one biblical where it went really bad, and one historical where it went really good. Uh, but but before I do that, I want to I want to rename this this membership stuff. And I'm not rebranding. That'll be later. We're still calling it membership. But I had a really interesting conversation actually with Ryan and Jamie talking about language. What's the language that we use? Is, is membership a good language? What does that communicate? 
because for some people that communicates the radio station WIIFM, you know that station? What's in it for me? You know, what do I get out of it? And we love to tune into that. And so someone floated the idea of partnership. Does partnership communicate something better? And we thought, ah, that's a good word, but, but that comes with some baggage too, some ways we might not want to look at it. Um, I've used the word covenant. Uh, do, we, do we join? Do we partner? Do we covenant? What does it mean? And you do know that language matters. I mean, language really matters. I had a good friend who was planting a biker church in Nebraska. He took over an old biker bar and was doing an amazing job planting the church. And he realized that he had a lot of new believers, a lot of converts who loved Jesus. They were excited for Jesus, but their, their biblical knowledge was really lacking. And so he decided, we need, to, we need to teach these people more than what I can give in a sermon. And so he decided to start a Sunday school program, and he launched it, and he worked feverishly to establish this Sunday school program for a couple months, and like two people showed up. He kept pitching it and pitching it, and nobody was showing up. So the next week, he stood up and he said, look, I love you guys. You know, I made a mistake. I launched a Sunday school program. It hasn't worked. We're not doing it. Done. The next week, he got up and he said, so I've really been praying, and we're launching a new program on Sunday morning before church because it's hard to get people other nights. We're going to start a new program for road warriors. And he packed the place out. Same thing. Christian education. That, that giving people the word in a way that's life-transformative. And so, so I've been kind of toying with this whole word, and in that meeting I asked, well, what if we just took the biblical uh, injunction and turned it into a verb? Because you know the Bible says a whole lot about what we should do with one another. And so what if we just created the verb that we are going to choose intentionally to one another, as the Bible says it? I know you're looking at me like, what are you talking about, Matt? Let me just, let me read a couple, really quick. Be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. Love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. That one comes up over and over and over again. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. And this one says with a holy kiss, I think we can contextualize that as a warm embrace or handshake. But greet one another. Serve one another. By the way, you do know it's really hard to do any of these while you're all looking up at me and the back of each other's heads. Is that fair? It's really hard. This is important. It's a critical piece of our collective life. And we're thrilled that, that people come to to hear the word and to worship together and, and to receive communion and experience public baptism and all of those things. That's awesome. But somehow these one another's that the Bible is very clear that we're to do. If we're going to be the church, at least the biblical concept of the church, a local body that acts like the called out bunch, the ecclesia, then we, we desperately need to find ways to do these things. Galatians 6, verse 2, carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. There's that word again. Forgiving each other. And 
By the way, today, I hope with the positive and the negative examples, the biblical and the historical, that, that we'll see where this didn't go well and the outcome and where this went unbelievably well and the outcome. This whole forgiving one another, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wow, there's a big one. Submission is not a word that we in America like very much, but the Bible loves it. There's a sense of submitting to one another, deferring to one another. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Bear with each other. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Are, are you getting the concept? Uh, I'm only taking about every third that's on my list, and I still have about 20, 30 more to go. And by the way, the end of the list is, again, eight times, love one another, love one another, love. You, you heard the story about the Apostle John. He was the big one on love one another. And at the end of his life, old man, he's one of the, he's one of the only apostles, you think, that actually got to live to an old life. The rest of them all died a martyr's death. And at the end of his life, they asked him, you know, all of these years that you have served the Lord Jesus, all of these years that you have walked, that you have ministered to the church, we, we know it's coming to an end. Teach us something that we need to know. Give us, give us what's essential. And he looked at him, he said, love one another. Love one another. It's what becomes essential. Okay, I don't think I need to go through any more of those. I think you get it. If not, see me afterwards, and I'll beat you silly. Okay, so let me give you two quick examples. The first is from Second Samuel, and it's the story of Ahithophel. There we go. 2 Samuel 16, 23. Now, in those days, the advice of Ahithophel, the advice that Ahithophel gave, was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom, Absalom was his son, uh, David's son, regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel was considered a godly man who the kings looked to for advice, and it is a story that went incredibly south in the worst possible ways. Uh, those of you who know your Bible well, you know that King David was a man after God's own heart. He loved God. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. He, he led as a king. He was a great king. And he also was the father of an incredibly dysfunctional family. I mean, incredibly dysfunctional family. Uh, we're going to share some of the dysfunction that went on in his family. But my first takeaway on this, by the way, is that you can be an incredibly godly person and still have an incredibly dysfunctional family. And I hate to say this, but if you have an incredibly dysfunctional family, you're probably a contributor to that in some way. And you can still be an incredibly godly person. There is this, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't get it, but it's true. My favorite, uh, like, like little meme or one little cartoon, is this huge auditorium. And in this huge auditorium, there's three people in the whole auditorium. And on the back of it is this big banner saying, Annual Gathering of Adult Children of Non-Dysfunctional Families. So few of us ever make it. Well... So how dysfunctional was his family? Uh, 
Absalom, this guy, um, he had a sister named Tamar, and one of David's half, one of David's other sons, Absalom's half brother, raped Absalom's sister Tamar. Absalom did not handle it well. Amnon definitely, he was the perpetrator. But David did not handle it well. Ahithophel, you'll see, did not handle it well. In fact, the only person in the scriptures that I think handled it well was the victim, Tamar. She was, she's probably the only hero of the story. The rest, in the midst of their dysfunction, things just got worse. So we're going to hear the story of how David's son, Absalom, decided that David was no longer going to be king and that he was going to take over. And in David's old age, probably in his 60s, Absalom had garnered enough support and came in and David had to flee Jerusalem with a, a group of loyal followers. And just like in the beginning of his ministry when he was anointed king, but he was still hiding out in the Engedi, out in the desert, hiding in a cave from his father-in-law, now he's out in that same desert, hiding in some of the same caves from his son who's taking over his nation. I can't imagine when a coup is enacted by your own child. I, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine the emotions of it. Interestingly, by the way, if you ever want to do a, a fascinating study, most many of our psalms, there's like a, a, a little line before the psalm that tells you the historical context of the psalm. And FYI, those little context things, we believe they were actually part of the original. So many of those contexts, unlike the rest of your Bible, which has like little context, like little headlines and, and headers telling you the, the situation, those were actually in the, in the scriptures. And so they're, they're part of the inspired word of God. And so we can, we can rest assured on some of, and not all of them have context, but some of them have very clear context about who sang it and what's the context in which they're saying it. And it's a fascinating study to read David's psalms that he wrote when he was being chased by his father-in-law at the beginning of his ministry, which is bad. But then also those ones that he wrote at the end of his life when he's being chased by his son. He's been king, and it's been removed, and he writes these psalms. And what's fascinating, you, you do the study, read it. This is, this is like extra credit for all of you. Uh, these over here, David is like, And over here, he's like, God, I have a problem, and I know you're good. There's this incredible emotional stability, having walked with God for so many years, through so many ups and downs, through all the dysfunction of family, all the dysfunction of life, and staying faithful to God in the midst of it, repenting when he's caught, not just excusing his stuff, but repenting, doing it publicly, that brought David to a place where even in a worse situation, he could have a, a firm confidence that God's still in control. That, that it's still good. This psalm, we don't, we don't know the exact context of this one. It doesn't have that little, you know, Psalm 55-0. It doesn't have that verse. But, but we know it's a psalm when David's betrayed. And many commentators think that this phrase is actually David talking about Ahithophel, this Prophet of God, 
this kingly counsel who David relied on, and as you see in the story, is going to betray David, is going to turn on David. David writes, but it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked among the worshipers. And then the rest is about the agony of betrayal. Ahithophel didn't handle it super well. Okay, next verse. So we're going to continue the story. Uh, while Absalom was offering sacrifice, so the context of the story, Absalom has marched into Jerusalem, he's taken over the kingship, David has run, David is gone, now he's having sacrifices offered to anoint him as the new king, letting all of Israel know that I'm now in charge, David's no longer in charge. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifice, he also sent for Ahithophel. He sent for this counselor of King David to come from his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom kept on following, kept on increasing. Ahithophel was summoned, Ahithophel came, and Ahithophel joined the coup. Okay? Okay, next verse. So Ahithophel is now giving Absalom counsel. What should I do? I've taken over the kingship, but we didn't get the king. The king ran. He's hiding with some of his mighty men. He's still, he's still armed. He still has some followers, but I'm now in charge. What should I do? And Ahithophel says, well, here's what I want you to do, Absalom. I want you to take a tent and put it up on the top of the palace so all Israel can see the tent. And one by one by one, all of David's concubines, I want you to parade them up to the tent, go into the tent with them, and let all Israel know that you're sleeping with David's concubines. Now, that was a different era. We don't have concubines today. Don't misunderstand that, please. I don't know how long it took, but David had a lot of them. We're talking... Day upon day, upon night, upon night, upon night, upon night, shaming King David through a sex act in front of all of Israel. Now, I don't think they saw what was in the tent, but not hard to figure out. It was intentional, destructive. That's, that's Ahithophel's first piece of advice. The second piece of advice, Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he was weary and weak. I would strike him with terror. And then all the people with him will flee, and I'll strike him down for you. Ahithophel's first recommendation is shame David by sleeping with all of his concubines so all of the followers of King David can see that it's going on. And second, let me take a whole bunch of people and go out and track them down and let me kill them. That's one of David's spiritual advisors. Man, how did that go so far south so fast? How did that happen? How do we explain that? How do we understand it? Well, let me see if I can give you a little insight into how that happened, because it's a, 
It's an extended dysfunctional family reality going on here. 2 Samuel 11.3 tells us that Bathsheba, now you remember the story of Bathsheba? She was the young woman who was outside bathing at a time when women bathed outside and men didn't go up on roofs. Uh, I was just up at my mom's house for the 4th of July, and my daughter and her husband came in, and my brother and his wife and his 16-year-old daughter came in, and my other daughter came in, and my mom has this beautiful house, and most, many of us would, like, downstairs, but upstairs is just this huge room, multiple beds, and, and we just kind of slept up there as a group. But when you're all asleep, when, you're, when, when your kids are this big, it's really easy. But when your kids are adults, the dynamics change a little bit. And so before you come up the stairs, I'm coming up, honey, is it okay? When you get, I would get up at like five in the morning and I'd want to go downstairs and do stuff and they're over there sleeping and I'd just kind of like duck down behind the bed to change out of my pajamas and put them up. Because you're respectful. If, if someone is, is coming out of the bathroom, you kind of turn around and get yourself busy with something else. Well, that's the way it was when the women bathed. And the scripture tells us that in the time when kings go to war, David was at home. Mistake one. Mistake two. He went up on top of the roof. Oh, I'm bored. I'm going to go up on the roof. That's kind of the, uh, the dark internet of the day, I guess. He sees Bathsheba. He calls for Bathsheba. He sleeps with Bathsheba. And Bathsheba gets pregnant. And quite frankly, with the power differential between the king and this young woman, um, I don't think it was consensual. I don't know. I don't know. But it was a, a gross violation. And then when she gets, gets pregnant, he sends for her husband, who is actually out at war where David was supposed to be, to come on back. And his, his plan was Uriah would come back sleep with his wife, and no one would know the difference. And when Uriah came back, Uriah said, no, I can't do that. I mean, if, if my men are out there fighting and suffering, I, I can't go and enjoy all of these meals and all this time with my wife with the guards in the guardhouse. And after the second, David actually brought him in and got him drunk, hoping that might work. And after the second or third night, he's like, okay, that's not going to work. And so he sent Uriah back to the front with a letter saying, please give this letter to the, to the general. When the general got the letter, he read it. And what it said was, when you're in the heat of the battle, put Uriah in the very front. When Uriah is engaged in battle in the front, grab the rest of your people and pull them back. It was a planned murder. Okay, this is David's worst point. By the way, no. So here we have in 2 Samuel 11:3, Bathsheba is the daughter of Eliam. And in 2 Samuel 23:34, Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. In other words, Bathsheba was his granddaughter. Now, we don't know the exact time frame, but people much wiser than me who study much more than I do in his Old Testament survey, James Smith says that probably David was 58 when he violated Bathsheba. And, Ahithoph I'm sorry, and when Ahithophel advised Absalom, David's son, 
to do these things, David was probably 64. So six years after violating Bathsheba, Ahithophel seizes the opportunity, goes and joins the coup, and his two pieces of advice are due to David what David did to my granddaughter and grandson. Sexually violate and murder. Talk about dysfunctional family. Folks, it didn't go well. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, because everything else flows from it. I used to do a lot of wound work with uh, psychological, spiritual wound work with pastors. And we used to try to get them to get to their place of wounding and meet Jesus in that place of wounding because a wound that is not transformed gets transferred. That when we don't deal with our stuff, our stuff just kind of eats out into everyone else. It's the, it's the angry man that yells at someone else, you're just so angry! And all they're doing is projecting. Projecting their own issues out there because they can't deal with them in here. Folks, dysfunction is contagious. And you're not immune. And the vaccine for wounding and the contagion of wounding is to one another. It's to intentionally, in the presence of God, say, I will forgive you. I will bear your burden. I will choose to love you. Now, I realize it's not a turn on, turn off. It's not a turn on, turn off. But, but only by, by allowing ourselves to stand before God and realize, first of all, how far we have violated God. How, how in need we are of forgiveness. Can we ever get to a place to be able to say, I don't forget it, but I forgive it. I'm not going to let you violate me again that way. I'm going to create barriers and boundaries. But man, I need to forgive you. Because this is a story of dysfunctional family going really, really, really bad. The truth is, folks, most of us are wounded in community. And God has so designed it that our healing then generally comes in community. It's when we find new episodic encounters with God and with brothers and sisters in community that can begin to get at that stuff that drives us, that God, that's why the, the scriptures are full of, will you one another? One anothering is not just about what I do for you, but it's about in that action what God does in me, what, how God begins to change me. I can't tell you how many people I've prayed would change, and in the midst of praying, honestly, if they would change, God changed me. You know, it's, it's the old Nathan to, to David. He tells him the story. David gets all upset, and, and Nathan says, you're that man. And then David writes Psalm 51, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Do not take me from your presence. 
Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your spirit from me. This incredible repentance. So this story uh, only gets worse. It's the last piece of the story I'll tell. So um, there's a second counselor, second spiritual advisor, and he stayed faithful to David. And so he goes into Absalom, and he pretends that he's turned, and he gives advice, and his advice is intentional to keep David from fo- or Absalom from following all of Ahithophel's advice. He couldn't do anything about the tent up on the top, but but he did get Absalom to choose not to go after David, to not let Ahithophel go and, and kill David and give David time to be able to recover and eventually take back the kingdom. And when Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order, and then he hanged himself. Okay, that's the negative. Let me go on to a much more positive, and this one I'm going to use uh, a historical uh, picture, a story of a group of men and women who doubled down and chose to one another. Uh, they chose community, unity, uh, above almost everything else. Now, in full disclosure, while I had known about the Moravians, and I had known some of the stuff of the Moravians. Uh, this week, I had the privilege of proofing our own Kent McKay's master's thesis on the Moravians. And as I'm proofing it, I, you know, I, I think I'm doing him a service. And the whole time I'm proofing, I'm going, this is really good. Oh, this is good for the... I got to... So, Kent, thank you for the material. And if any of it is wrong, it's Kent's fault. Okay. So, let me start by saying, oh, and the other thing is that there's so much to say about the Moravians. God, God had begun a journey with them 300 years before the time that I'm going to talk about. And there were so many ups and downs and ins and outs and, and, and wanes and, and just everything that God was forming them and moving them and, until they got to this place between 1720 and the 1730s in those two decades where Everything seemed to gel, and God used literally a few hundred immigrant poor believers to radically change the world. I mean, radically change the world. It, it culminated on what they called the Moravian Pentecost. On August 13th of 1727, the end of three days of, of spontaneous grassroots revival where people were, were testifying the Spirit came so powerfully that they didn't know whether they were in heaven or on earth. They couldn't tell. And, and, the, and the Spirit of God came, and from that point, within 12 days, they began an uninter- uninterrupted 24-hour prayer cycle where several believers would sign up for each hour of the day. And for 24 hours, they would pray. Each one would pray for an hour with a couple other people. Now, if we instituted that, um, I would be proud of us if we got a full 24 hours because the 2 o'clock in the morning slot is really hard to sell people on. Uh, if we could do that for a week, I'd feel pretty good. I mean, if we could actually, three or four of us are always praying on every hour of the day for 24 hours, 
and we do it for a week, I'd be like, that'd be awesome. What would God do with that? Imagine if we did it for a year. I mean, could you imagine what that would do to our hearts and to the kingdom? And the Moravians did it for 100 years. Twelve days after their, their own Pentecost movement, they started a prayer, 24-hour prayer cycle that lasted 100 years. Within 12 months, they sent out their first missionaries to Greenland and to the West Indies. They were so committed to the mission work that they were doing that those who went to the West Indies, they said, we want to reach the oppressed slaves. They didn't have any like great training except what God had done to them in their life. They didn't, you know, they didn't go to missionary training school. They didn't do a development program. They didn't read the biographies. They just, in fact, at that point, very few Western Christians were doing missions at all. This is pre-William Carey. They're just not doing it. And, and, and so they, they feel committed. They go, and, and they send them to the West Indies, and they say, we're going to go and, and work among the, the poor slaves, and we're going to do no matter what. And they said, even if we have to sell ourselves into slavery, God's calling us to do this. We'll do that to communicate with the slaves and reach them for Jesus. I mean, is that a pretty big commitment? No, no, some of you are probably thinking, boy, that almost sounds cultic, Matt. You do know that Aristarchus, in the 27th chapter of Acts, did that. Paul was a prisoner. Paul had been in jail for the gospel for a period of time, a long period of time. He finally appealed to Caesar. They said, to Caesar you go, and they put him on a boat for prisoners. And when you read Acts 27, it's really clear that they were still committed to this whole idea that one person doesn't go, because Paul figured, I'm going to preach the gospel to, the, to Caesar and to his court. This, is, this isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing. You know, Rome's paying for me to get there. But they always went as a team, always as a group. And so Luke gets onto the boat, probably signed on as a doctor, but then it tells us that Aristarchus got onto the boat as well. And most scholars think the only way he could have done that was by signing up to be Paul's slave. Paul was a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens were allowed to take a personal slave, even if they were in prison, to take care of their own needs. And here's a guy who says, I'm so committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to this team ministry together that I'll sign on. And he had to, he had to live it. He had to act it on the boat. Because the Romans weren't dumb. Twelve days, a 100-year prayer gathering. Twelve months, sent out their first missionaries and ended up going to five continents in the Caribbean by the time uh, Count Zinzendorf was kind of the person that God used to gel them all together, by the time they all got together, um, in Zinzendorf's life, one out of 12 Moravians ended up as part of a missionary team. One out of 12. And I'm not talking about the short-term mission. I mean, they dedicated their life to missions. One of those groups within a decade was going across the Atlantic, and the boat was in this incredible storm. John Wesley happened to be on the boat. John Wesley had finished seminary. He had read more books than I've read my whole life in, like, a few years. And everybody was panicking because of the, the storm, except for the Moravians who were in one corner. They were praying, they were worshiping God, and then they were going out comforting all of their, their co-workers. Wesley was so impressed that he went and sought out the Moravians, and his testimony is that it led to his Aldersgate conversion. He became one of the fathers of the First Great Awakening. 
the Moravians impacted the First Great Awakening. William Carey, who was the father of the modern missionary movement, said, quote, see what the Moravians have done. Can we not follow their example and preach the gospel to the whole world? What led to this unbelievable movement? I'll try to do this quickly. First of all, a disclaimer, God used a bunch of things. But the number one thing he used was, quote, an abiding, codified, absolute commitment to one another. At great personal sacrifice and undaunting humility and boldness, Vincendorf, who was the count, came and moved in with the Moravian people and convinced them to sign what he called the Brotherly Agreement for Unity and Accountability. And then for the next decade, lived that commitment out. Some have said that, that Vincent Dorff added fellowship as a third sacrament of the Protestant church. Committed to, to living out one another, to actually doing the one another's with each other. So much so that it became the foundation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on just a few hundred believers who literally turned the world upside down. Jesus said that they will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. I'm not going to pull up the brotherly commitment. I don't think any of us will sign it. So it's humbling. It's humbling, the commitment level that they did. But I am asking, could we at least say, let's commit to one another in tangible ways that according to the words of Jesus so that that they will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. As Ryan comes and leads us in communion as our final act, um, consider this as you participate in communion.